ব্রেনিস্ট Uh, it's a bit of a safe space for nerds away from the craziness that is indian tv nowadays and you'll be doing all of this with me your host shoaib dandia for the second episode of scroll ideas i'm extremely pleased to welcome historian nikhil menin who joins us from the from the university of notre dame he's written a fantastic history of uh, of planning in nehruvian india called planning democracy in which he charts how planning went became extremely popular uh, including in one uh, uh, delicious instance of uh, mohammad rafi singing it uh, we wanted to bring it onto the show but uh, our producer said it would result in a copyright strike uh, so you just have to google it yourself or read the book and um, we heard to discuss how planning became so popular uh, you know it went through it went through it went through every you know it it it's it suffused politics it went into it went into bollywood it even went into uh, a group of very influential sadhus called the bharatiya sadhu samaj we'll come to that how sadhus are related to planning uh, and uh, it sort of kind of died out so where we are right now i guess is uh, we're past the 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 great golden age of centralized planning i think both globally and in india Uh, and it's very much a free market age and we'll go through that history of uh, the exciting life and and i guess the death of centralized planning with nikhil menon welcome to the show nikhil thank you so much shoaib thank you for having me on i'm glad you could make it it must be really early where you are right now yes it's fairly early in the morning yes. but okay. i'm very happy to be on the second episode of stroll ideas well very 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 glad to have you especially if it's early we'll go to jump right into it one of the one of the most fascinating things that i find really about planning uh you know it became so popular or it or or, or it was the cent- one of the central poles of indian democracy in its first couple of decades at least was that the freedom movement under under gandhi was actually not really very conducive to ideas like planning uh, big industry in fact mr gandhi was very clear that he considered them evils that uh british colonialism had actually brought in uh yet you know nehru sort of kind of turned it around and you know made this such a popular idea that you know rafi was singing about it and dilip kumar was reportedly as you mentioned in your book uh wanting people to donate to the plans uh, how how did how did nehru pull this off it seemed like quite a political trick Yes uh, I mean that's a that's a great question um I think that it's it's well known that Gandhi was opposed to industrialization uh, certainly modern factory based uh, economic systems this goes back to the early 1900s to Hind Swaraj onwards in which he refers to western industrialization as factory civilization but I think that I would can I would sort of push back on your characterization of the freedom movement being opposed to industrialization and to planning because in some ways Gandhi though he was the vehicle of the mass movement of the Congress party his economic ideas in some ways sat um at ill at odds with and ill at ease with the views of many economic modernists within the, the Congress party so for example the economic critique of colonial uh, of the colonial system going back to the late 19th century from Dadabhai Nauruji onwards RC Dutt Gokhale uh uh Delang uh, uh you know all of these people all of it was a critique of the kind of economic system that the british put in place in india but it advocated for industrialization of indians by indians themselves right and so going back to the 19th century you have this legacy and the early 20th century and in some ways people like nehru there and and bose as well uh were two very important figures who continued that kind of critique of the uh, colonial economic enterprise which is very different from the kind of critique that that Gandhi advanced and so uh, i i think that we should think of the the congress party from the late 1930s onwards as being quite firmly behind 
uh, industrialization and certainly planned-based industrialized societies. Uh, so in the 1938 Congress conference uh, with Bose as president, very clearly the Congress manifesto mentions that India needs a centralized planning board and that it needs modern industry. And this was backed not just by the Congress party, of course, but communists in India backed industrialization. Uh, but so did, and this might come as a surprise to some, so did India's industrialists. G.R.D. Tata, G.D. Birla, Lala Sriram, all of them believed that India, uh, naturally believed that India must industrialize, being industrialists themselves. But they also believed that India needed a planning body to help India industrialize, which is why in the mid-1940s, in fact, in the year 1944, we see a rash of plans across India. You have the Congress. Congress, of course, has its plans. Uh, the colonial government has its own planning department. Uh, there is a Muslim League plan. There is a Gandhian plan as well, with a foreword but written by Gandhi himself. Uh, there is a plan, the Bombay plan, or what is known as the Tata Birla plan by industrialists. Uh, all of them in different ways arguing with different specific policies, but arguing for the state in an independent India to play a central role in directing the course of the economy. Right. I mean, that's fascinating. The fact that, you know, uh, even industrialists uh, were, were so keen on planning. What, what was their what was their thinking? Like, why did, did they think that uh, having centralized planning would be beneficial for large industry in India? So Absolutely. I think that what we need to recover is, uh, and my role as a historian has been to try to recover through this book, um, the a sort of lost world, a lost world of economic ideas in which planning was a very mainstream choice in the early and the mid 20th century, especially. We have to go back to the late 19th century with major restoration in Japan, with the first five year plan in 1928 in the Soviet Union both of which really showed to the rest of the world what uh, as a government uh, sort of putting its resources behind in the economy could do for a underdeveloped economy, right? And so that the course for these countries had to be different from that of the West, which had had 200 years to industrialize, whereas countries like Japan and the Soviet Union, and after that in the 1930s, after the Great Depression in America with the New Deal under FDR, the President Roosevelt, again, the government playing a very important role in 1945, the Labour Party comes to power in Britain with Clement Attlee as the Prime Minister. The Labour Party's manifesto on the election campaign explicitly says that the Labour Party believes in socialism and believes in a planning-based uh, economy. Right. So it is actually, so the government in charge of the Indian Empire under which India was oppressed itself believed in some ways in a planned economy. And the industrialists therefore believed that and, and within India, so this is a sort of international story, but even within India, there was a long history of technocrats and industrialists believing in planning. So um, from the uh, 1920s onwards, Mokshagundam uh, Bishwesteraya, uh, who is a Mysorean and an engineer, civil engineer, who uh, served the princely state of Mysore, um, who, on whose birthday today, actually, India celebrates Engineers Day because he's seen as right. sort of, uh, one of India's sort of founding or leading uh, early engineers. He writes a book in the 1920s about uh, a planned economy for India. He writes another book in 1934 arguing for a centralized planning board that, that puts together what he calls the brightest minds of the, of the generation uh, to come up with plans, 10-year plans for India. Uh, in 1934, G.D. Birla, the sort of iconic industrialist uh, and nationalist, speaks at the floor of FICI, the Federation of Indian Chambers, Indi uh, Chambers of uh, Commerce, um, and he's speaking to capitalists, saying, making a plea for planning, saying that any future so modern society needs a planned, uh, a planned economy, needs the central government to back it, and needs a plan in order for India to sort of leap forward economically. And so, one is that there is some debate amongst uh, historians about why it is that in the 1940s, especially um, these big industrialists like the Tatas, the Lala Shrirams, uh, the mm -hmm. Birlas, why they get behind planning. And so one argument is that there is a genuine commingling of interests, a genuine sort of meeting of horizons of the nationalist parties and of the industrialists in which they both believe that this is what is necessary for India to overturn its, its colonial economy and the way in which India has been exploited, that the only path forward is a planned economy. Some other scholars have actually contended that that might be being too charitable towards these industrialists and that what they actually realized was one that planning had such 
popular was was so popular across political parties whether from you know the hindu right to the communist left that there was no space to be making a free market argument the free markets were associated with colonialism and therefore tainted and so therefore you had to make an argument within what was seen as the median positions uh, of the political mainstream but also that uh, the other self-interest reasons that industrialists might have had was that industrialists weren't really interested in having an open economy in which they would have to compete with say american made uh, american made steel japanese made goods and so actually closing the economy for already industri- established industrialists like the billas and the tatas allowed them a vast home market in which there was no competition right and so they would have a, a sort of a, a market of approximately 300 million people to which they could cater to without needing to be internationally competitive yeah i think that's a fascinating point because i think british colonialism did give a lot of favors to non indian industrialists so it was almost like turning back the clock a bit if you could put it that way especially if you were a big industrialist maybe it didn't work out if you were an indian consumer exactly But you know and this is a, this yeah. is a point of debate uh, with indian industrialists from right. the 1930s onwards and scholars have charted this which is that they were always railing against uh britain's sort of discriminatory tariff policies that that favored right. foreign businesses and that that hurt indian businesses uh, especially big businesses right and the, you know what you said this uh, you, uh, you, you there are always debates around planning today and very often what i find is that they get reduced to the personality of nehru which is uh, i mean it is what it is and it's always exciting to debate a man but i think what we miss is what you just said that you know it was it was the it was the consensus of its time i mean you know whether you were an industrialist whether you were a person on the hindu right whether you were a communist it was it was i mean one of the things that i find again and again is that uh, when you speak of planning it is the idiom of modern development as opposed to something in the past you know just it is it is the cutting edge tech uh, so to speak of its time Yeah absolutely I I think that um you're right to say that that I mean of course we live in an age in which everything Nehru is considered tainted uh and so planning as being associated with Nehru and rightly associated with Nehru is seen as bad but I think that there's a lot of public confusion about uh about planning and and import substitution and uh you know why India had a closed economy and so maybe it's worth discussing it in sort of two or three parts and so the first part is that we need to remember that nehru in some ways gets credit if you believe in planning and for people who believed in planning at the time nehru got credit because he put the political muscle behind it but nehru did not invent the idea of planning he did not make planning internationally popular in some ways nehru was sticking very much to what was economic orthodoxy at the time he was picking a mainstream policy choice and so we have to go back to a time in which that was the mainstream political choice and so whatever mainstream economic choices are today we have to think of nehru being in his time picking those mainstream economic choices uh, and why do i say that it's because development eco- uh, economics as a field was you know developing in the 1940s and the 1950s and across the world development economists the, the leading development economists of the world at the time uh Rahul Rahul Prebish, Hans Singer, John Ken Galbraith, Arthur Lewis, Gunnar Myrdal, um Richard Stone, some of whom went on to win some of the first Nobel prizes in economics, all of them basically backed uh the idea of the state playing a very important role in the government and of having some sort of uh um uh, of a sort of of import substitution as a way for a um uh, a, a newly decolonized nation to advance economically. um now those are foreign economists what about amongst economists in india when the second five year plan was presented in draft form in late 1955 early 1956 to a panel of 21 economists only one of them bia shenoy dissented bia shenoy was a, a member of the montpellier society which is a free uh, an organization that had been started by uh, uh, friedrich hayek and sort of a free market laissez faire economics organization uh but apart from him everybody else basically agreed with the broad strategy while quibbling with some numbers um think of in the present day who are the best known uh economists of uh of india today i mean you'd say perhaps um 
Manmohan Singh, Amartya Sen, Jagdish Bhagwati, uh, as I refer to them in the book, as I said, the holy triad of Indian economists right. in the right. contemporary age, all three of them at the time in the late 1950s and early 1960s believed in planned economic growth. In fact, Jagdish Bhagwati, who has since been one of the biggest critics, right. they playing a role. In fact, today is seen as a sort of uh, as uh, as a sort of hero of uh, of anti uh, right. atheist policies and has been consistently that for at least three decades. But in the early part of his career, he worked for the Planning Commission. He worked for Pitambar Pant at the Planning Commission in Delhi. And he says so himself in his own writings and his own interviews. He said that we had all drunk the Kool-Aid at the time and that when Mahalanobis came to Oxford, where Jagdish Bhagwati was then a, uh, a, a, a doing a sort of a, a, was doing a scholarship, uh, Mahalanobis asked him to come back to India to work on planning. And Jagdish Bhagwati says that I was very happy to be one of the professor's boys because he thought of Mahalanobis as being the cutting edge. And so Mahalanobis uh, and Jagdish Bhagwati says that, um, I mean, as Jagdish Bhagwati sort of quips uh, jokingly, he said that maybe one of India's fates uh, and downfalls was having brilliant economists and that we all believed in this economic theory that, that he believes did not pan out in the long term. So, right. so that's one part of it being, uh, of it being mainstream. Um, but I also think we need to distinguish between planning and import substitution. You see, right. because planning was adopted by several countries in the mid 20th century across the world. So yes, there's planning in the Soviet Union, there's planning in China, there's planning in China even today uh, for that matter. Right. Um, but in the mid 20th century, Japan is planning, South Korea is planning, Vietnam is planning, Malaysia is planning, France is, Argentina is, Ghana, Sudan, Tanzania, and other 20 nations in Africa. Right. All decolonizing nations are planning. Um, and what is different is, and so somebody might rightly ask, well, why did Japan do so well? Why did South Korea do so well? Why did we not match their growth? Mm -hmm. And so some scholars have argued, like Atul Kohli and, and Vivek Chibber, that, that the techniques within planning differed. India followed import substitution. Those other countries followed right. an export-led model. Um, and so lastly, the question would be then, why did we choose export? Uh, why didn't we choose the export model? Right. And I think for that, we need to see, look at India's own history and India's nationalist movement in which being, if you are to be an export-led economy, you have to kind of be an open economy because you have to allow for open tariff uh, barriers because otherwise mm -hmm. countries will also impose tariffs on your goods. And now being an open economy was just seen as extremely suspect after 200 years of colonialism in India. And right. so it was sort of marked by that, uh, by that brush. Um, and so, and given the history of Swadeshi as well, there was a strain in Indian thinking, again, from the Hindu right to the communist left, that India needed to be self-reliant, that being independent meant being self-reliant. And so, and again, as it I said- still exists. You know? Sorry? This exactly. strain still exists. Yes, with Atmanirbhar yeah. Bharat, uh, Make in India, yes. And this was again, as I said earlier, it was something that was endorsed by, uh, by industrialists as well, perhaps for self-interested reasons. Um, and so as this economist, I.G. Patel, who you know, went on to be the director of IM, IM Ahmedabad and LSC, et cetera, and he was a young economist at the time in the 1950s, he would say that Nehru's obsession was industrialization. It wasn't planning or it wasn't import substitution. Right. But industrialization was the obsession and this was seen as the path to getting there. Right. And I think, you know, the point that you made about, you know, it, the, it being a colonial reaction, I think sitting here, we forget as to what a central ideological pole laissez-faire and free trade was for the British Empire. I mean, you know, there's this uh, fantastic history of the 43 famine uh, right. by historian Janam Mukherjee. It's called Hungry Bengal. And there is a there is a price controls conference in 42. You know, when British are seeing that uh, Bengal could face, a, uh, although it's had a good crop, but it's still, you know, prices are going up. Right. And uh, it's quite remarkable that their, their, their solution, their prognosis is free trade. And of course, I mean, the disaster. So, I mean, you can look at it politically that, you know, you've had incredible starvation and, you know, in, like, I mean, of many effects. Uh, and for, for a politician in a popular elected politician in 1950 to say that, oh, we're going to follow the economic policies of what are what is now seen as a British empire at that time. Right. 
it's it's a tough nut to crack i think you know so yeah i mean maybe even if there was a non nehru we would still be having this uh debate i guess there's a high chance of it right i mean i also think that it's it's worth pointing out that that planning itself people assume sort of quote unquote failed immediately but yes. even critics of uh centralized economic planning so for example today uh the 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 you know the uh the chief uh the chief economic advisor to the prime minister to prime minister modi vivek debroy has written a piece saying that actually in the 1950s planning actually worked to develop industrial capacity in india it did deliver certain rates of growth that were not seen under the colonial regime uh another sort of critic of mm-hmm. of statist uh economic policies niranjan rajadaksha who writes you know uh who is written for the mint in the past uh he's also talked about how these policies were actually crucial to spurring growth uh and to delivering uh, rates of growth as angus madison uh, as an economist has calculated between 1900 and 1950 india's rate of year on year economic growth was less than 1% between 1950 and the mid 1960s it grew to 4% that's a sort of quadrupling of the growth rate which coming from such a low base that india had was i think uh, a, a significant achievement and i think that 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 as even these critics uh, have admitted uh, that the license permit raj really sets in from the late 1960s onwards uh, especially under indira gandhi when you have a spate of of bank nationalization life insurance nationalizations uh, and uh, a politicization of the planning commission itself right so is this so one of the i mean i'm i'm glad you you in your book you brought in minu masani who's you know for our viewers is uh, he fit in right in 2022 i guess but in in the 50s he was a bit of an oddball i guess considering he was a free marketer he was a parsi bombayite uh and one of the things that you mention in your book is you know he stands up and he says that you know why aren't we focusing on consumer goods and you know from 2022 it, it kind of seems such an obvious point that you know i can go out and buy any phone and any chocolate and whatever i want uh, why wasn't there democratic pressure on nehru and the congress party to ensure this immediately how like how could he steer the indian state towards making uh, say steel and capital goods which of course very important from and and the people who knew were very important were very few maybe they were planners but from from the from the ground up why wasn't there a groundswell of demand for these goods yeah i think that sure the first thing that we need to remember is that we are as you mentioned talking about a time that was just the planning commission was born 7 years after the bengal famine which cost right. you know a million lives i mean so that's the kind of quote unquote consumer we're talking about i mean that's the level of um of dire that's the context and that's abject the, uh, poverty we're talking about and so right. the cons- today po- there would be popular pressure for consumer goods in some ways because we also have a a fairly substantial middle class i mean however you want to define middle class but it's still numbers in the tens of millions of people right uh, uh, and it's the, the people that pay income taxes etc at the time we're talking about an overwhelmingly illiterate society and an overwhelmingly poor society with an extremely thin elite class and so there wasn't i think the kind of pressure for consumer goods uh coming to masani uh, himself uh, at least it wasn't being able to have a job or have food or to prevent famines those seemed like more electorally pressing issues uh coming to masani himself masani was this sort of dapper uh, parsi gentleman who was you know one time uh, a congressy one time socialist uh, as somebody put it at the time you know uh, now you know running towards the right with all the fervor of an apostate right that he had converted his economic ideas and now is zealous right. about them uh, now that he converted his, his views um masani was openly pro us and pro market and as i've said there wasn't really much of a political constituency for that at the time um uh, even today we see that uh, a strictly pro market anti welfare state politics is not popular right i mean even under the bjp and modi today we have as we we've discussed uh, atmanirbhar bharat we have all kinds of government provisions all kinds of government safety nets uh, that you know some critics uh, some free market economists uh who are critics say that india should get over and that we need reforms and this is kind of thing that we see in business papers and uh, internationally and in india but the government is very skittish about doing it 
because politically it, it suspects that there might be ramifications. Um, and so if there is, if it's politically dubious today, you can only imagine how much more difficult it might have been to consider or to have a, a constituency for that view in the 1950s or 60s. Uh, there was a political party, of course, Masani was part of uh, the Swatantra party, uh, which uh, Rajaji, Rajgopalachari was one of the founders of, uh, and it was founded in 1959, but, and it was, it did get several seats in parliament, uh, but it never really had a mass constituency. Uh, most of its members were ex-Congress people, uh, and so they were well-known figures. Um, and in the 1950s and 60s, across the political spectrum, there really was not uh, a space for explicitly laissez-faire uh, economic conservatism. Uh, in right. that, across the political spectrum, while people disagreed on secular politics, people disagreed on the size of the state, but people weren't critiquing whether the state should be playing an important role or not. You could have had a, even if the Jansum was voted into power uh, at the center, I would be, I mean, it was not, in, inconceivable that the Jansung at the time would become a sort of in, economic conservative power, at the time at least. And so... In fact, uh, the BJP is uh, till now on paper a socialist party. Exactly. Oh, that's true. Yeah, exactly. So, right. I, yeah. Think that, I think that yeah, it's, right. it's worth remembering the, sort of the, the, mm. the importance that the idea of socialism, vague as it is, has been in Indian history, right. that all, look at the kinds of people that have been called the socialists, right? The BJP is socialist. Uh, I mean, in fact, as the the, the scholar, Columbia scholar Siddhartha Kaviraj has, has argued that India after independence, socialism became such a big umbrella term that it created this kind of socialist night in which all parties were black. Because it, the socialist label could be used if you were a Hindutvavadi, if you were a communist, if you were a congressy, all of them claimed to be socialist. Uh, and so I think that that the Masani critique, the consumer goods critique, which was also made by some uh, Bombay-based economists like C.N. Bakil, P.R. Brahmananda, B.R. Shanoi, there were some critiques politically and from expert economists, but it never really uh, found traction on the in the electoral arena because India just did not have, I would, I would argue, a kind of middle-class constituency uh, as driving its politics. Right. And, you know, uh, this is, I mean, this is really the, the key that, you know, there was this, there was a popular pressure that made, uh, uh, that made free market politics uh, unviable, like, actually, you know, I guess, uh, one of the most interesting things that I find when I'm reading stuff from the 50s and the 60s is that uh, uh, everybody's critic, like, like you say, everybody's critique of socialism, it's like almost like, you know, you're saying you're not a good Christian. Like, you know, I mean, the way, you know, like, I mean, say you, you're on a Christian world, you, 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 your only critique can be in those bounds. Right. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's a very common thing to say the British were acting unchristian in India, you know, like, I mean, that's, that's right. one way to put it. So uh, a lot of those controversies were within that framework. Right. What I want Naruji, to Naruji, in fact, that... wrote a book called Poverty Sorry. and Un-British Rule in India as a way to shame, um, shame the British. Right. Right. Exactly. That's another very good example. So even the British, when they were at their worst, were at best un-British. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, in this, and this is something that you've discussed through your book, and I think a lot of people have also commented on, uh, and this is such a relevant debate to where we are right now, this, 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 this tension between popular pressure which could be electoral democracy at its worst, it becomes maybe a form of populism versus technocracy. The fact that, you know, you can have these incredibly smart uh, eggheads uh, in Calcutta and Delhi and, you know, there'll be these 50 people who would uh, tell uh, India. In fact, even in sometimes what I find really remarkable is even they'll even, you know, direct the finance minister and so on and so forth. It's really quite remarkable the fact that uh, so much of power gets pulled into uh, this small circle of experts. Is that a debate that's happening there? Are there people saying, you know, whoa, you know, why is in parliament taking policy and so on and so forth? Like, is there a technocracy versus uh, democracy debate happening? Or is is Nehru really aware of that and is really walking on two stilts over there? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And I think that one of the running themes of my book is this sort of fracture that runs through planning between uh, democracy and technocracy. 
And I think it's one of the fundamental tensions that we need to pay, to pay attention to, these pulls between uh, popular electoral politics and populist electoral politics and uh, a technocratic politics that has this kind of bloodless quality and extremely cerebral quality. Um, and I'd say that while the planning commission was technocratic, it might not have been inimical to democracy, but it certainly was intentional with democracy. And that, uh, and that the, the te technocratic aspects of the planning commission did puncture big holes in the Nehruvian argument that Indian planning was democratic planning, that it somehow reflected the Indian people. Of course, and, and we might discuss this later, the, the Nehru government went to great lengths to, to make the plans popular. I mean, the entire second half of my book is about how right. you know, there were exhibitions, there were traveling mobile vans and bullock carts that were projecting films about the, the, the planning commission and the five-year plans. Uh, there were these, uh, you know, sadhus that were promoting the ideas of the plans. There were voluntary troops such as the Bharat Seva Samaj that were promoting plans, all with this Nehruvian idea that the Indian populace needed to be aware of this grand social and political and economic experiment that they were part of. Uh, planning had become central to the story of modern India. Planning was central to the story of an independent India making its way in the world. And that if Indians knew what they were part of, that they would work harder towards it. And so partly there's an idealism to it, but part of it is just that India had limited state capacity and it knew that the state alone could not deliver it. It needed people to work towards it. In what ways? By investing in the ways that the planning commission wanted it to, like in sort of saving it in certain kinds of bonds and et cetera. Um, but also to in engaging in voluntary activities in building a bund or in helping build a dam or in helping build a dispensary or a hospital or laying a road without being paid by the government. And a lot of this happened, and I lay this out in my book, an enormous hundreds of thousands of man hours uh, just, just donated to the government in order to fulfill these five-year plans because there was popular buy-in, at least in some sections, about the idea of a free India engaging in these plans. Regarding the technocracy itself, yes, it is a, um, a closed group of intellectuals uh, who are directing the ways in which the economy would proceed. But in some ways, it is tempered by the fact that the prime minister, the finance minister, and usually the minister for planning and the minister for industries sat on the planning commission. Now, these are, of course, cabinet level appointments. These are selected by the prime minister. And the prime minister, of course, is from a party that is popularly elected. And in the time of Nehru, Nehru himself was the, the primary vote catcher. So in some ways, there is a tether. And so the way it worked in Nehruvian India was that the populism, which Nehru could have wielded because he was such a commanding uh, popular figure at the time, was tempered by the fact that Nehru himself in some ways was in love with the idea of expertise and with technocrats. And so he was willing to cede that authority to technocrats to whom he felt that these questions actually naturally belonged to. Um, an issue with contemporary populism is that today's populism is untethered to this technocratical element. In fact, populism very often, and internationally, not just in India, is often anti-intellectual. And that, and we see that, for example, with uh, with things such as demonetization in India, right? That uh, a uh, a political move and a massively important economic move that seemed to have been taken without much expert economic input. Now we can go back and say the 1950s perhaps was India was the was the expert input that Nehru got always the best. That can be debated, but in today's India, especially with a move like demonetization, you see that there was almost no expert input. Across the board, economists, you'd be hard pressed to find an economist of reputable standing who thought that demonetization as it was carried out was a smart policy. Uh, and so I think that there is this tension about how much power do you allow technocrats to arrogate to themselves versus how much of a populist kind of government do you want. And I think that going in each extreme can be problematic. And the way in which it might have worked in the Nehruvian era is that there was this tension, but it was kind of the fact that Nehru was such a popular leader, but at the same time was the most per was the person most con convinced about planning and the technocracy allowed it in a sense to hold in suspension in some ways, whether for good or bad, but that's what allowed it to work. And we see the wheels coming off it uh, under somebody like Indira Gandhi, where it became entirely politicized. 
Uh, and after Indira Gandhi, of course, the Planning Commission uh, entirely begins to lose its powers to the Finance Ministry. So under Indira Gandhi, it was a completely political body for her political aggrandizement. Right. It was. It, it became much more politicized. Uh, the the decisions about uh, uh, about what uh, policies to follow seem to have been motivated a lot more by politics. Uh, the move right. to, for example, uh, bank nationalization, uh, the, the nationalization of other parts of, of the Indian industry seem to have been influenced by other political factors as well. And there wasn't uh, the same kind of deference that Nehru had for, uh, for economic experts uh, and for, um, in a sense, admitting that that, it was a, that was a domain that Nehru was not the best at and was not someone who really knew the tools and knew how to wield them. Uh, and so we see that the scholars have written about how under Indira Gandhi, the slow uh, deterioration of the Planning Commission's powers in some ways get, gets arrested. And once again, the Planning Commission becomes very powerful, but it becomes right. powerful not because the experts are powerful, but it's because it became the, the means through which uh, Indira Gandhi could exercise her powers. And that, of course, is not very surprising given that the, the rampant centralization of authority is a feature of uh, and not a bug of the, the Indira Gandhi, the prime ministership. Era. This is like a nerdy sort of point, but how, how like one of the one I, I was reading a, a, an opinion by a former chief justice of India, Keso Barao, and he flat out calls the planning commission unconstitutional. And uh, he says that it was actually the job of the finance commission. Uh, to mostly do what and maybe individual ministries uh, is this like again you know was this just the towering personality of Nehru just just pushed this through like how did how did the planning commission arrogate these incredible financial powers to itself I mean I'd say again that there's there's a danger of making it entirely about Nehru because if it was I should preface this by saying I'm not a legal scholar or a constitutional expert but having done this research on the Planning Commission, it seems very surprising that if it was entirely unconstitutional and entirely based on Nehru's personality, that we had a Planning Commission from 1950 to 2014 with, you know, opposition governments in charge as well. Right? I mean, I mean non-Congress governments uh, presiding over it as well. Um, I think that I would say that it's I would say that it's not an anti-constitutional body as much as an extra constitutional one by which I mean that it does not find mention within the constitution, but it was not something that came as a surprise to anybody or to any political party, which is why I think we've had a planning commission under Congress governments, under Janta governments, under BJP government as well, um, because the need for this kind of expert planning body, as I said, goes back to Indian uh, economists arguing for it uh, and engineers arguing for it back in 1934, uh, then in the late uh, 1940s with the the British colonial government also having its own planning department. Um, but you're right to say that the powers of the planning commission did cause alarm amongst uh, some people in within the Indian government and amongst the intelligentsia. So, for example, John Mathai, one of our first uh, finance ministers, resigns in 1950 very publicly in an embarrassment for the Nehru government, still a fledgling government that had not yet contested an election. Of course, the first elections were in 1951. Uh, 52, 1951-52, um, and John Mathai, when he was uh, resigning in these sort of series of interviews that he gave to, to reporters, one of the reasons that he cited for resigning is uh, were the powers that were being given to the Planning Commission, which was formed in March 1950, and he described it as a parallel cabinet. Uh, however, having read the letters between Matai and uh, Nehru at that time, over the few weeks in which Matai was threatening to resign, Nehru was trying to get him not to resign, and in the end, he did resign. It seems from the letters that that while he was concerned about the Planning Commission, there were other concerns that were perhaps more predominant, and that had to do with growing government expenditure, the Nehru-Liakut Pact, etc. So, so there were many other concerns as well, but this was something that um, the first, you know, finance minister of India, first finance minister to resign, did cite as uh, as as a problem, and so others would pick up on this in the 1950s when they want to critique the the planning commission's policies, saying that it's a parallel cabinet, that's a super cabinet, and the critique was that it's a super cabinet because it has these unelected technocrats, but it also has 
very important cabinet members because the, the, the prime minister is the chairperson of the planning commission and the finance minister is always also a part of the planning commission. Right. The other, you know, cr criticism that the planning commission gets, one is obviously the fact that it's a super cabinet, as, as you put it. Uh, it's sort of, it's often in the process, I mean, not anymore because it, it doesn't exist, but till it existed was often in the process of federalists. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, I mean, I've heard this, I've heard multiple chief, this is being put in the mouths of multiple chief ministers of them having to go with a begging bowl to the planning commission, including uh, Mr. Modi, who eventually managed to, uh, I guess, uh, take his revenge on, uh, on the planning commission. Uh, it, what I want to know is that what is the, what is the political economy of this for, for Nehru, is, is, is this a way for him to control states outside the Congress party? Because remember, this is a one-party polity practically, right? So is this, rather than going through the Congress party, which is one way to control the states, does this give Mr. Nehru you know, this power through Delhi to control the states? Is, is, is that one way through which it works? I mean, I'd say that you could think of it as both as a power to control the dispersal of funds to states but also if you if you want it to be more charitable i mean a critic could say it's a way of control uh, a supporter might say that it's a way in which you can ensure um a holistic national development approach in which for example states like that have been more affluent in india such as say gujarat well then Mahara uh, then sort of maharashtra uh, also then sort of Bombay presidency really, uh, or Madras or, uh, or, um, you know, these states or, or others in the South that have already had higher per capita GDPs would not necessarily outstrip others without others having the chance to develop. Right. So, so yes. So, so to come back, the, I, I'll come back to that point, but I think that it's worth going back to the idea of whether it is a tool of centralization. I think in its most formal sense, yes, it is a tool of centralization and it was very much designed as a tool of centralization because the Congress believed in centralized economic planning. Um, you will remember that uh, one of the many objections that the Congress party had to the cabinet mission plan that the British proposed in 1946 was that its tiered structure of having a sort of three federations of Indian states had a very weak center. Now, India would have been quote unquote independent, I mean, sorry, you'd have Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India all together, but you'd have them in these federations of states and that New Delhi would basically have only power over currency and foreign defense, right? Uh, yeah. That was unacceptable to the Congress party because its ideas from the early 1930s onwards were for a powerful center that could direct economic development because a fundamental part of the argument for independence had become that India didn't just need to become independent because we needed, you know, Indians or brown people in charge instead of white people. But India needed to be independent because Indians could develop the Indian economy. And for that, the Congress Party believed that you needed a strong center. So the argument for centralization was kind of baked into the politics of the time. Um, and the reasoning for the Commission's powers was that the center had an interest that went beyond just that of each individual state. And so, for example, what if you had a state, say, in uh, in northern India or in eastern India, as there were many at the time, which was economically lagging western India and southern India, as they are even today. Mm -hmm. But those states had a river that could be dammed or had minerals that could be mined. Uh, and therefore, you needed to build something there or therefore you needed to build a factory, a steel factory there. But they did not have the resources for it. How are you to do it? only a central government would be able to redeploy resources in, in order to be able to do that kind of thing. And so the argument was that centralization enabled sort of a holistic national growth in the way that if you let states doing to do what they want to do on their own, you'd have some outlier states that did very, very well, but also many other states that didn't do well at all. Uh, and so I think that that was, that was the logic. Now, you might disagree with whether that, that worked or whether that was the right path even. Some might argue that, you know, that states should just do the best that they can. But that was the logic of the Planning Commission. But that changed over time. Some people, even within the Planning Commission, thought that those powers were too extreme. And so with one of the deputy chairmen of the Planning Commission in the mid-1960s, D.R. Godgill, 
uh, he came up with what is known as the Gargill formula in the late 1960s, which basically meant that the dispersal, pow dispersal powers of the Planning Commission were not just discretionary anymore, but that there was a set formula by which different states would get different amounts of money. Correct. I mean, I'm always very happy to discuss the Capital Commission Plan. I don't know whether it's... Uh... It's, uh, it's, it's whether Mamata Banerjee knows it or whether she doesn't, but it kind of pops up around a couple of years back. She mentioned that the center should have three powers, defense, communication, and currency. Right. So uh, I don't know whether she knows that this is something that was uh, <laughs> hotly debated or whether she just, I guess, as a state chief minister, it's beneficial for her. Right. So, I mean, but I mean if she of... is referring to it, she should also know that, that West Bengal would not be its own state under that system. It would be part of like a whole slew of other states as well right right no I, I'm, I'm not I, I don't think she wanted grouping but yeah, yeah. uh but yeah she wanted uh, limited uh central she wanted the congress view i guess of the cabinet mission plan right no grouping but yeah I, I don't think whether i don't i'm not sure whether she referenced that uh one of the interesting things that i find about you know you know i mean Partho Chatterjee in an essay uh, describes, uh, you know, this 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 tension between politics and technocracy as a quarrelsome couple. Again, you know, your book is extremely thorough about that. You go into this dynamic, and you you just mentioned Demon, uh, you know, 15 minutes back, has, you know, has one 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 couple, one part of that couple completely. One has politics. One is technocracy. Now out is. Is it even possible to do central planning today in India, where you have a Modi versus uh, Stalin and versus a Mamata? Like it, I mean, it was a one-party state when the Congress did it. It, it. Under India's, you know, maybe even more vibrant democracy today, is it possible to do central planning? I think that you're right to say that 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 the the, the period in which central planning seemed an extremely viable option was a time that the political scientist Rajni Kothari has described as the Congress system, right? It wasn't just a Congress government in Delhi and in some state capitals. It was the, the Congress government almost across the country. And the Congress as a sort of umbrella ideology, it was a sort of air that everyone breathed in. And that, that there were competitors, but nobody that really seemed uh, like a real threat to the Congress party. And so at that time, again, these debates, as I said, about federalism also were, were tamped down because, of course, there were Congress governments in most states. And so there wasn't the situation that, say, Modi faced in the early 2000s, where he as the chief minister of Gujarat was going to a Congress government in Delhi, um, as, as the story goes, hat in hand, asking for funds. Right. So that was different. Um, and I think that it leads to the question of whether, in some ways, whether it was inev inevitable that the Modi government would do away with the Planning Commission. And uh, historians are never like to say that anything is inevitable because we believe that things aren't inevitable and part of our job is to show how things aren't inevitable and that contingency plays such an important role. But I think that it's fair to say that it was extremely probable that Modi would do away with planning for some of the reasons that you pointed out. One is the personal grouse that he might have harbored that many reporters have talked about. Second is the, the populist politics and the populist style that, that, Modi, uh, that Modi champions uh, that, you, that you referred to. And it's a populist style that is in keeping with uh, many leaders across the world, Viktor Orban, Donald Trump, uh, Putin, etc. People who are explicitly anti-technocratic and anti-intellectual. In fact, intellectuals are seen very often, universities and intellectuals are seen as the enemy, uh, as right. being the opposite of what the party in power represents. Uh, and so it was extremely probable that a body that represented technical expertise and intellectuals that was unelected was likely to face the chop, uh, to be on the chopping block. Um, and lastly, there is, of course, the desire to eclipse and to completely obliterate the Nehruvian legacy, uh, given how closely planning is associated with, um, with Nehru. Uh, I think that it was again something that, that it was likely that that that, that Modi would want to to get beyond. Um, but it's even it's a worth, it's a worthwhile question to wonder whether even if we did not have this kind of politics in power today, uh, whether planning could come back. One model would be that there is a kind of planning that China still has five-year plans. I mean, we, we in India we keep talking about the Chinese growth and how we need to catch up. 
There was a time a few years back in which we would talk about how maybe we can catch up. Now that seems very, very distant. Um, now it's more about whether we can keep China you know, outside our borders more, more likely. Um, but China still has five-year plans, and China is, you know, a capitalist economy with these, with a sort of command-style capitalist economy, right? A uh, market-based, uh, centralized planning system. And so, in the page of the Financial Times a, a couple of years back, uh, I read a piece arguing about how, you know, the fact that we have big data today might enable uh, planned economies like China's to actually thrive. That was actually the argument being made by people like Mohammed Obis in the 1950s exactly that with that with india's burgeoning statistical infrastructure with all this fire hose of data coming from the national sample survey etc that we needed a data processing mechanism and this revolutionary new technology digital computers were a way to solve that problem of big data so in some ways that same argument is being made today as well with enhanced digital capabilities that you could have a planned economy but of course i think that that works uh, you know, works in terms of delivering economic results um, with a whole lot of political oppression, of course, in China, which is not a democracy. Uh, and there are ways in which you can maintain this body of experts and have a planned economy in a country that does not brook dissent in the way that, that India is formulated. Right. In fact, China uses, in a way, data to uh, not only tamp down, but maybe cut off dissent Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, it cuts out dissent or knowledge of dissent right. from the outside world as well. Right. Right? It is the great firewall. Right. No, that's fascinating. And especially given our understanding that one of the reasons maybe planning wasn't so good is that because although India had the best statistical systems at its time, but I mean, how good can it be? How much information can you, you right. know, get in? At the end of the day, these planners are sort of working blind, at least to right. some extent. Yeah. yeah, I think that it's uh, worth remembering that planning does not represent just one person, Nehru, or one party, or one kind of economic policy. Right. We've had planning in democratic countries, we've had planning in communist countries, we've had planning in communist countries that didn't work, like the Soviet Union, and planning in countries that, where it did work, like China. Planning in countries that were military dictatorships, like South Korea, planning in countries that were democratic and where it worked very well, like Japan. Right? So we can have planning that's import substitution, our planning that's export-led, which is not to say that this is an argument for planning, but just to understand the historical complexity and the different shades that this one word took on across the world. In fact, I think we've gone so much the other way that uh, one of the uncontested things that everybody can agree that India did very well at that time especially under Mr. Molinovich was to you know, build up these incredible statistical systems, including the NSS over the NSS. So kind of, uh, it sort of, it was vermouched uh, out of uh, India. Like the last NSSO wasn't published uh, as uh, Somesha had, uh, had written in the business standards. So, I mean, what's, what, what's, what's, is, is this another facet of our populist age that, uh, uh, you know, that we're going to diverge, uh, we're not going to have data, like China's going to have this massive data and it's going to control everyone, but we're going to have no data and we're just going to work on intuition of a big leader? Yeah, I think that it's worth thinking about, even with China, there have been very valid questions raised about whether China has been upfront about its COVID death toll, right? And in fact, most people suspect that it has not been, especially in the early periods of the outbreak. And so, Having the data is not the same as being transparent with the data. And right. I think in India, just like in, in China, uh, it has been discovered that, as I write in the book, that good data is not always good politics. And that India's statistical system was once really the envy of the developing world, at least. In fact, some of the statistical advances made in India were seen as, even by statisticians in advanced economies like the UK and America, as just improbable, that it could not work, but it did. And uh, development economists, um, including uh, the Nobel Prize winner Angus Deaton, have talked about how India's statistical system was really um, quite amazing uh, for its time. But that has changed. Uh, in fact, just a few days ago, The Economist published an article about India's de deteriorating statistical uh, infrastructure. And while there have been, the Indian government has never been under any government 
Uh, no institution has been immune from political meddling, especially, for example, under say Indira Gandhi. But I think in the last sort of uh, five to seven years, we have seen that the national sample survey data, household survey reports that um, that was supposed to come out, say, in 2017, 2018, but was at, or supposed to be published in 2019, were either suppressed, just did not come out on time. And in fact, the Business Standard uh, leaked a report that was supposed to come out but did not. And in fact, two members of the of the of the organization resigned in protest because of the government suppressing the results. And what were the results? The results were that India was facing 30-year record unemployment. Uh, since then, there have been other surveys that have been suppressed, which shows that India's uh, uh, household uh, consumption has dropped dramatically. Uh, there have been surveys. Uh, there's a great debate about uh, what. The, what how many indians are poor the government claims that very very few indians are really poor in an absolute degree anymore but most development economists uh martin revalian who works at the center for global development says that there's no way for economists to really tell because the last data set that they're working with is a data set from 20, 2011 2012 and it comes out every five years the national sample survey carries out a five-yearly extensive survey and the one that was supposed to come out in 2017 just never came out uh, the government claimed that there were issues with the data quality. Uh, and so we're working with data that's 10 years old. And so you really can't tell what the Modi's government's uh, poverty revision efforts, whether they've been successful or not, because the last data we have is from UPA2. Um, and so the government really can't claim any of this without sharing this data. And this isn't just by, uh, you know, by political critics of the government. This is a, a, an aspect that's being critiqued by statisticians across the world economists across the world, former chief economic advisors, the prime minister, like Kaushik Basu, a former chief economic advisor to the current prime minister, Arvind Subramanian has written about it in the Financial Times, Nobel winner Abhijit Banerjee has written about it, Thomas Piketty has written about it, and a whole slew of Indian economists, of course, as well, have written about it, as I write in my book, from ranging from JNU to MIT, uh, and covering many you know, sort of you know economic and political positions in between. Um, so I think that is a, a, a real blow to India's data infrastructure. And it's one that we might come to regret because it it hinders the government in its capability to perform all kinds of activities. We've also seen in the recent week controversy about uh, India's mortality numbers with COVID, right? Uh, and that's part, I think, of the same issue, which is that once you start getting um, worried about sharing data, I think that it is a slippery slope that you can go down. And of course, nobody really believes that India's um, mortality is under half a million. I mean, that that's just yeah. most experts to be a severe undercount. Uh, and part of it is because we, we, we don't have good data gathering capabilities for that anymore. Right. And it's really quite remarkable considering, I mean, India is still at the end of the day, an aspiring welfare state that it could think that it could devise schemes and plans and, you know, for millions and crores of people uh, without absolute data as basic as the NSS. So it's really quite remarkable. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, it's, uh, I mean, Mr. Modi himself is actually a big welfareist, but it's, it's very much depending right now on, I think the BJP and its feedback mechanisms, which I'm sure they're great, but, uh, you know, I don't think they can match up to, uh, the NSSO and so on as the eyes and ears of the government. What I'd like to end off with is a bit of a tangent. One of the fascinating things I find about your book is you spend a lot of time trying to explain how Nehru actually, you know, did this public outreach for the plans because, you know, he, he wasn't in the Soviet Union. He wasn't in Mao, Maoist China. I mean, he really needed to, you know, uh, you know, bring these two ends together, the popular and the technocracy. And one of the most fascinating things I find is that uh, he he sort of endorsed a bit reluctantly, uh, a group of sadhus called the Bharatiya Sadhu Samaj. They still, I think, have an office in Delhi, uh, given by the government. And it, you know, it almost it, one of the one of the interesting things is, you know, I want to go into a mind of a sadhu at that time. And we have these incredible debates about Nehru versus Modi, and you know, this and that, and you know, left versus right. And I wonder what he thought of Mr. Nehru, because I mean, for all he knew, Nehru was supporting his organization. And, you know, as, as you show in your book, uh, I'm sure you'll expand on the Bharata Sadhu Samaj, uh, then really shifted right, you know, it left the Congress umbrella. It kind of reminded me a bit 
of actually uh, Shahid Amin, I think, who's taught you also, yes. his, his subaltern history of Chauri Chaura, which was really an eye-opener for me because, you know, uh, their Gandhi was really, in many ways, a religious uh, man, a, a miracle worker in, in a literal sense in some ways. And uh, in some ways, I think for maybe for a, for a sadhu in the Bharata Sadhu Samaj was Mr. Nehru uh, atheist, leftist and so on the way we would think of him or was he, was he just an Indian leader? I mean, did these debates percolate down to the ground, basically? That's a great question, Shrub. And I must confess that while it is the job of historians to get inside the minds of people and try to recreate their motivations, getting inside the mind of a sadhu is particularly difficult for me. Because, of course, the life of a sadhu is so different from that of even sort of ordinary politicians of different political stripes, etc. Sadhus have to live a life of material and you know spiritual renunciation. I have a job. I have a family. So, I mean, so getting into that is, is harder. And so right. it's hard to know what the sadhu on the ground thought about Nehru. But we do have a sense of what the Bharti, the Bharti Sadhu Samaj thought about Nehru because we do have some of the writings uh, from them. So to just to bring you the, the sort of the viewers up to speed, the, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj was an organization that was established in early 1956 at a meeting uh, at Birla Mandir in Delhi between about 50 sadhus and representatives of the Congress government. So present were uh, the president of India, Rajendra Prasad. There was uh, a Gulzarlal Nanda, who's the primary backer of this. Gulzarlal Nanda was a former Gandhian uh, trade unionist, and he was at the time the the sort of uh, the the planning minister for India. Uh, he would also, uh, uh, for those interested, become a two two time interim prime minister of India. But Gulzarlal Nanda was a God fearing, very devout Hindu, and he believed, as the minister of planning, that if planning was to be made popular, it had to be spread across the country in an idiom that was familiar to India's religious millions, and that idiom was Hinduism. And so he wanted sadhus to talk about the plan and to talk about the Ramayana and how it related to planning uh, and talk about the Mahabharata and how it related to planning and to infuse this kind of religious language into the plans. So the Bharat Sadhu Samaj then became this organization that was supported by, was an independent organization, but had as its honorary president and vice president Nehru and Guzal Nanda. And so they made the most political mileage they could of this association. I would say that Nehru still remained deeply suspicious of them. Nehru himself was never somebody who was courting them. Nanda had to convince Nehru of the ut utility of this enterprise. He did manage to get them in the prime minister's office in front of Nehru once. But every address that we have from Nehru to the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, which is rare, has Nehru talking to the sadhus in which almost no contemporary politician would talk to these sadhus. Right? It is extremely non-deferential it is almost like he's scolding them uh and it's, it's very clear that he is very suspicious of what they will do because there had been in fact he has these intemperate outbursts in which he sometimes refers to sadhus as fakes as spongers or worse and it's because there had been a host of prime reports at the time in the mid-1950s of sadhus or people who claimed to be sadhus engaging in illegal activities like fraud kidnapping or rape even there was even a sadhu registration bill introduced in parliament uh, and the Bharat Sadhu Samaj took it seriously. The Bharat Sadhu Samaj said that this is a problem. We have many criminal elements amongst the sadhus. So yeah. if you need to be, if you want to be called a member of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, you need to apply to us and you need to have an identity card of saying that you are a registered sadhu of the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, you know, because to have our thappa on you. Um, yeah. so I'd say that Nehru was extremely suspicious, but it, this is like a creature of Gulzarila Nanda uh, and of other religious figures such as uh, Rajendra Prasad. Uh, who, you know, of course, you know, broke away from Nehru in going to inaugurate this, uh, the re-inaugurate the Somnath Temple, you know, washed mm -hmm. the of hundreds of Brahmin priests, the kinds of things that Nehru was very critical of and felt the government, especially after the wounds of partition, should not be engaged in doing. Um, but of course, the Bhatta Sadhu Samaj got much more indulgent and deferential hearing from people like Indira Gandhi onwards. Uh, and as you point out, one of the dangers of, the, of, I think, of this kind of outreach is that the Bharat Sadhu Samaj became, had its own pet projects. It didn't really care so much about five-year planning. What it cared about is anti-cow slaughter. Uh, the first attack on parliament in 1966 happens because a, sadhus, a sadhu march 
which had been supported by Gulzar al Nanda, turns into right. a riot in Delhi, killing many uh, hundreds injured. The police had to be called in. The police had to fire upon sadhus. Uh, they attacked Congress uh, government ministers' houses. Uh, but also that from the 1960s onwards, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj, members of it, one person in particular, Tukdoji Maharaj, becomes one of the founder vice presidents of the VHP. Right? So its politics becomes far right. And by the late 1980s and 1990s, the Bharat Sadhu Samaj is basically a part of the Ram Janmabhumi movement as well. Of course, going against the interests, the political interests of the Congress party and favoring the political interests of its arch rival, the BJP. Well, thank you so much. That's a... Uh... Kuzarinandanda being introduced as two-time interim prime minister would be one of the sadder introductions that any politician has got. Thank you so much, Nikhil, for your time. This was absolutely fascinating, uh, discussing the history of planning. Planning is discussed, I think, a lot from an economics perspective, as it should be. But I'm glad we discussed it in the form of ideas and politics and history and, of course, sadhus. Thank you so much for joining us, Nikhil. Thank you so much, Daniel. This was a real pleasure. Sure.